welcome. Like I said, I'm Clara, and I'm glad that you're here. And I pray that the Lord will bless our time together. Okay, now those of you who consider yourselves follower of Christ, have you ever faced opposition because you follow Jesus? I mean, ever been ridiculed or insulted? Ever been talked about or alienated by friends or family or co-workers because you have decided to walk with Christ? Now, most of you know that I was raised in a non-Christian home. So when I was about 18, I had a very significant encounter with Jesus Christ. And at that point, I gave my life over to Jesus. I was super excited about my new faith. And so within a week from my conversion, I talked to my parents, all my siblings, about why they needed to ask Jesus into their heart or they'd go to hell. Yeah. So as you can imagine, my parents particularly were not very excited about this conversation. And they said, what's so wrong with being a Catholic? You know, are you going to now become one of those born-again freaks? And it was not too cool for my dad particularly. He particularly was very upset with me because I told him, you know, you're going to go to hell if you don't ask Jesus into your heart. And he angrily said to me, who do you think you are to tell me something? I mean, he was my elder. You know, who do you think you are to imagine that the God who created this world would pause and take interest in you? I mean, really. Now, my dad was a deist, which is someone who believes that there's a God that created all the universe and then just backed away and is letting it run its course, like a well-wound clock. All right? And he basically told me, this is a fad, honey. It's just a phase you're going through. It's one of your teenage phase, you know, fads that you've gone through, like everything else. And in a couple years, you won't be doing this. I told him, you're wrong. This is no phase I'm going through. I saw Jesus. He's the real thing. Now, for those you've been raised in a non-Christian home and have become a Christian as an adult, you can expect to be persecuted by your parents by your siblings, by friends. Your community is going to get upset with you. They may alienate you, mock you, ridicule you. They'll call you a Jesus freak. And it kind of hurts. It hurt me when my dad at 18 said those things to me. And you know, every Sunday we put out our signs out there, right? We advertise on the internet. We have a web page. We have Facebook. And we encourage you all to invite your friends to come to church. But do you know there was a time when Christians were hated, hunted, and had to hide to meet together and gather together as believers? In 1 Peter, Peter is writing to the Gentile Christians, people who were insulted and mocked and ridiculed for their faith. They didn't go to the idol worship gatherings anymore. They did no longer gave sacrifices to the emperor. And they were considered divisive because you're not joining in anymore. You guys are atheists. You only believe in one God. What's with that? We believe in thousands of gods. And where it was legal, Christians were persecuted and abused for their faith. And this is the case today for many countries throughout the world. In many parts of the world, there are congregations that have to hide to meet. They have to be careful when they're going to gather together as believers. We used to have a, a young man who used to come to this church, and he was for a time, he lived in the Middle East. And while he was there, he thought, you know, I want to worship with Christians. They did it a little bit differently there than they did here. 
when they gathered for church, they had to, over a course of several hours, one person at a time would go to a house. Very casually, big deal, not carrying anything. It would take several hours before everybody was gathered because they didn't want the authorities to notice that something was going on there. He told me that when they sang the worship songs and when they read the scriptures and when he heard the prayers of the saints, he said it was so impactful. He had never experienced anything like that before. The affinity for the church, the worship, the intimacy with God, and he thought there's nothing like worshiping with the underground church. I was reading um, this this week from the Voice of Martyrs. The Voice of Martyrs is a, a group that is telling you, informing us what's going on right now with the church that's being persecuted. And this article was written in September 2012, so it was just a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's called The Truth About Persecution in Cuba. And I just want to read um, portions of the article. Much has been written about the new season of openness for Christians in Cuba. But those who are able to speak freely say the persecution is still there. It's just a bit more hidden. While few Christians have gone to prison for their faith in recent years, the Cuban government still mistreats, marginalizes, and opposes Christians. One Cuban pastor, we'll call him David, shared, don't be fooled. Many won't speak about this because of fear. If we speak out in Cuba, there will be consequences. Now, David became a believer when he was 15 years old. His family kicked him out of the house for his faith. He was forced to work as a field hand. He's now 52 years old. He's been interrogated more than 20 times, humiliated, beaten, and threatened many times. Now, recently, some officials came to his house on one of his Sunday morning services and told him, we're going to take your property and we're going to use it as a store. This is what Pastor David said to them. I told them they couldn't do that because we were under the protection of the Holy Spirit. And they backed off. The article continues describing some of Peter's, uh, David's experiences. In Cuba, Christians are often let go from jobs or not allowed to apply for certain status of work. Children are required to renounce Christianity and embrace communism. Christian young people are often not allowed to graduate from high school or enroll into college. So persecution for Christians is still a, a thing that's happening, right? It's not just for the ancient world. Now, David Barrett, he's probably the guru, statistician, maniac for global Christianity, and he loves statistics. And he put together this quote after his research. If you total up the number of Christians who have been martyred, now not persecuted, we're saying martyred, in the 20th century, the number would average around 300,000 a year just because they are followers of Christ. So what that translates is that in one year, we take the population of San Antonio. It would mean one out of five people in San Antonio would be killed for being a Christian every year. So Peter gives us strategies to be Gentiles, Christians, and how to live our faith under the pressure of persecution. When we're insulted, persecuted, ridiculed, how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond when you go home and you tell your parents, hey, I've become a Christian, and they're not all that happy about it? 
How do you respond to your husband who curses you because now you're a follower of Christ and you're not willing to go partying with them and get drunk with him and his friends? So we're going to continue our series of 1 Peter. This is not our home. And I've called today's sermon, Suffering, Par for the Course. Let's pray. Lord, I first of all want to pray for our, your church, Lord, our church at large, the persecuted church. And Father, I pray that you would empower them to be bold and wise, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Lord, that those that persecute them, they would bless. Lord, those that insult them, they do not return with insult, that their lives would be so otherly that those who want to come against them, Father, would come down on their knees and worship you. Lord, I pray you would hide them under your wing. And you would protect them. Father, protect those in our church who come from families where they're not too keen about their newfound faith. That they would experience you hiding them and covering them. That they would be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That their life would exemplarily show you that you would give them courage, Lord, and above all, give them love. And Lord, I pray for your, your word to be relevant to us this morning, that it would land on us, Lord, and it would cause us to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, we are going to read some scriptures out loud together. Um, it's kind of a, a, a few verses. Verses First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 8. To 18. You ready? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, these words of Peter are reminiscent of one of um, Jesus' documented sermons, probably one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, um, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what's really interesting about the Beatitudes, and today's lesson is not about the Beatitudes, but if you were to read the Beatitudes, you would find that the person that, um, that the writer uses is different than in this verse. Jesus uses the second person. He uses that grammar word meaning you. Okay, there's I, there's you, and he, she, them, right? And in the portion where he talks about persecution, he uses the person you. Very unique. Blessed are the peacemaker, blessed are those that do this and that. But here he says you. And he does that for a very good reason because he doesn't want us to view persecution at arm's length. Okay, like that's not for me, right? In one ear, out the other ear. Because he knows persecution is par for the course. It is a mark of a Christian. This is what's going to happen to us in this world that we live in. He doesn't want us to just nod our heads and fold our hands. Oh, yes, yes, oh, oh, those poor first century Christians, oh, those poor people in Cuba or Muslim, God bless their little hearts. Blessed are they when they are persecuted. There's no they. Jesus uses the pronoun you. Peter does too. You will inherit a blessing if you bless those that insult you or do evil against you. Now, Randy is a great life coach. Randy's my husband, and he's my favorite life coach. And one of the areas in which he coaches me in is in the area of preaching. And one of the things he's commented to me is, Clara, be careful how often you use the pronoun you, because it feels a little threatening. And it doesn't really convey your love that you have for the congregation. I said, okay, that's cool. I'm going to work on that. But there's no getting around it in this verse. Yeah. Here we go. In this verse, you're talking about persecution. It applies to you, to me, to us. Without exception, if we're a follower of Christ, we can expect persecution in our life. Being opposed, being cursed, being insulted, losing a job, being overlooked for a promotion, discriminated against, humiliated in a university classroom. You may be wondering, how could I be a Christian and witness in my, my faith without it affecting me in terms of how the faculty or the student body deals with me? How can I share my faith with my coworkers was it in any way affecting my reputation as a cool person? This is my question. How can we be true followers of Christ at school, in our neighborhood, at work, and it not have an impact on our reputation? How can I be a follower of Christ and it not impact me professionally? Can we expect that when we share our convictions about Christ, that there's no feedback, no payback, no price to pay? Why would we think that there would not be a price associated with our devotion to Christ? Peter didn't seem to think that way. Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Peter knew that insults and evil done, deeds done against us 
was going to be par for the course. Jesus and Peter were both aware that following him would cause society and us to have a clash. Kingdoms will clash the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And there's going to be results, suffering, persecution. So we need to ask ourselves, if I never face opposition because of my faith, then what does that say about the authenticity of my walk with Christ? If I so cocoon myself from non-Christians that I no longer have people that I share the gospel with. If I've never been made fun of, never been rejected, never lost anything, never paid a significant price for being a Christian, then how are these scriptures going to relate to me, Clara? Why do both Jesus and Peter talk about suffering for Jesus' sake? Why talk about persecution? We're living in 21st century America, right? Is that only for first century Christians, for Christians who live in Cuba or Muslim worlds? Notice that Jesus in this text does not say, blessed are the persecuted, period. Blessed are the persecuted for persecution's sake. No, he doesn't put this blanket statement. He qualifies it, and he clarifies that the people who are blessed, that are being persecuted, are the ones that live for righteousness. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He's not pronouncing a blessing on those of us who are obnoxious, tactless, rude, right? Not every time we suffer in this life is it because of Christ. We didn't always get a bad grade on a report because we're being persecuted we didn't lose our job because we're being persecuted. Not necessarily. Now, yes, that does happen. But a lot of times it's based out of poor performance on our part. So Jesus is not pronouncing blessing on those know-it-alls. How many of you, immediately after becoming a Christian, experience opposition from your family right off? Suddenly, you're a religious know-it-all. Did any of you write a letter to your parents or to your siblings about your explaining, explaining to them why maybe they're not a Christian and they might be going to hell? No, Jesus is not pronouncing blessing, blessing on know-it-alls. I know, because I did this. What I'm describing here are things that I did and said, and I experienced opposition. I was obnoxious, rude, know-it-all. He's not pronouncing a blessing on campus preachers who point out women in the crowd and say, you whores! Not. The blessing is restricted to those who live righteously, live a life of right deeds. Now, do you know, friends, that when people experience righteousness or goodness, when you meet up with a person of high integrity... Okay, or you are in, in this situation where you see this person is very gracious, very kind. They kind of stand out. Okay, you meet somebody of, of, of a standard of a purity about sexuality. 
They're, they're not going to fornicate before they get married. This kind of right living falls on people, non-Christians, in two ways. It's either a blessing or a threat. It's a blessing because they're like, wow, you've got something I don't have and I want it. What is it? And, it, and, and the opposite opinion is, is a threat because you are a reminder of two different worlds, God's way and the world's way, and they don't like being put in that place. And so you might be accused of being a goody two-shoe or she thinks she's so perfect because they don't like that sense of any way being seen as not in the right place. And they'll tell you you're so judgmental when really it's they themselves are judging themselves. You know, if you are in high school or in college, you're in your 30s or your 40s, and you're not currently dating, and you're not sleeping around with the opposite sex, your sexual orientation suddenly is called a question. Right? If you do great work and you don't brag about it, you're labeled passive or a weak person. If you care about your family and you don't spend Friday nights hanging out with the buddies from office to get drunk, you're not a team player. If you refuse to compromise for basic Christian values at the workplace, you are called someone that's completely out of touch with reality. You see, a person who genuinely pursues righteousness in an unrighteous world is going to experience a clash of kingdoms. Have you ever been labeled, ever been excluded, spoken against, then you have paid a price because of right living. Now, why would Jesus and Peter tell us, blessed are we when we're persecuted or insulted for doing good? Here's a couple of verses from 1 Peter. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I don't know if any of you remember me mentioning her before, but I'm going to mention her again. Her name is Helen Rosenveer. And she was a gal who was uh, born in 1925 in Ireland. And um, in the early years of her college, she became a Christian. And she ended up going to Cambridge to become a medical doctor. She was one of those female medical doctors who, who uh, finished the course early on. And then she was, uh, decided that she was going to um, answer the call to missions by going to the Congos. This was in the 50s, 1950s. So she goes to the Congos, and for the next 20 years, she uses all her resources, her life, to build medical schools and to build hospitals in Africa. Great woman. Then in 1964, there was a civil war that broke out in the Congos, and then the the persecution began against missionaries. Now, the missionary boards were calling out their missionaries and telling them, come back. And Dr. Helen said, no. These people are killing each other. They're dying. If any, they need me. I, I can't just be leaving now. And so she felt called by the Lord to stay behind to minister to those who were being affected by the war. In the four years that she was there, she was attacked. She was beaten. She was raped multiple times and she continued to stay and she continued to share her faith finally she was 
captured by the Simba uh, prisoners, soldiers, excuse me, and they threatened to murder her. During the five months of captivity, she continued to share her faith. Because she had been abused and raped herself, she was able to minister comfort and love to some of the Congolese rape victims. She was part of that frame we've been talking about, pointing to Jesus. Now, she currently is 86 years old. She's never been married. She's a phenomenal speaker. If you can look her up, listen to her sermons. They are so inspiring. And she has inspired and motivated thousands of college students to get involved in world missions. And I just want to share a little bit of her message. Everywhere I go in the West, I tell Christians that they must re-fall in love with Jesus. Christianity in the West says that we must have bigger cars, bigger houses, a better job. Once Christians fall out of love with all of that and fall in love with Jesus, I won't need to talk about missions. People will become missionaries because they love him. Why would she put herself in a situation where she could be abused and harmed and insulted? Because she loves Jesus? Because she loves the lost? And she knows why she's been left behind. You're a student, you're an employee, and you're regarded as a reasonably smart, intelligent person, and you're being challenged by your students, by the faculty, by your boss, a coworker. Are you saying that you think Jesus is the only way to God? Do you mean to tell me that you believe that all human race came from the one couple, Adam and Eve? Are you insinuating that Christianity is far superior than Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism? And all the other world religions, really? What are we going to do? Are we going to stand with Christ and be laughed at? If we love him, if we love the lost and we understand why we are here, we do. We take it. You know, we can't always be cool Christians. You know, you're so much better than the other Christians. You're really a cool Christian. There are times where we're going to have to decide, am I a cool Christian, or am I going to stand for my faith and give an answer for my faith? Peter talks about it here. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, I could imagine some of us would be a bit intimidated by this verse. What if a non-believer asked me some question about my faith and I don't know what to say? Well, let's be prepared, right? Can we be prepared to give an answer for our hope? Now, a great book that I've referred to before, and I'm on my third read, okay? I'm a slow learner. And it's a book called A Reason for God. And in that book, the author presents, deals with questions and objections that non-believers have about Christianity, about Christ, okay? 
And here are some of the questions or statements that non-believers might ask us. Can there be just one true religion? How could a good God allow suffering? Christianity is a straitjacket. The church is responsible for so much injustice. How can a loving God send people to hell? Science has disproved Christianity. You can't take the Bible literally. Now, do these sound like some of the questions that non-believers might ask you, that you might be afraid to know how to respond to? Maybe for some of you, these are questions that you have and you've never wrestled to find its answer. Now, Keller, the guy who wrote this book, is a pastor of a thriving church in the East Coast. And he wrote the book because these were the questions his seekers were asking. And he wanted to empower the church to be able to respond. Now, if you have a friend or a family member who's a bit cynical, maybe mocking you about your faith, I can't believe you're getting into all that religious stuff. Really? I thought you were smart. Is that what you got out of college? I mean, look at you. At this point, you should be getting rid of those kinds of crutches and moving on. Gently ask them, kindly ask them, if, if they really want to have a serious conversation about Christianity, if they would get a piece of paper and write down on that piece of paper a couple of questions that they might have or a couple of objections they might have, and that you'll get back with them. And you get back and you read the book, you study, you research, and you come back and gently and kindly respond to them. You know, for a lot of folks, if you ask them to do that, they say, well, I don't really know what I don't like about it. I just don't. They have some kind of vague feeling, maybe something they saw in a movie or something they heard other people say, like the classic, all Christians are hypocrites, right? So they're just parroting what they've heard with it not really having any substance. But some of them actually have some very good questions. All of these questions are questions that I've had to deal with and wrestle with. That's why I'm reading the book a third time, because I'm still chomping on this. And if the, your friend would be willing to write down those objections on a piece of paper, I, most of the time they land on one of these two questions. One is, is the Bible a reliable book, literature that we can really depend on? That's one of the questions asked a lot. The other one is really common, is how could a good and loving God allow suffering in the world and do nothing about it? Most questions go on those two, but sometimes there's some other ones. So we're going to do some research on the questions, objections, and then we're going to respectfully, gently share our faith. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, we're going to do a little activity. Uh, ushers, are you guys ready? I've asked the ushers to hand out to y'all index cards. So you're each going to get an index card, and you're each going to get a pin. Now, if you already have a pin, then put your hand up so they don't give you a pin. Okay, and what I want you to do, and uh, Terry, can you put that list back up from um, Keller's book? Now, these are, are those most of them? Okay, so you're going to have to, like, put those there. I kind of wanted that all on one slide, so you're going to have to go switch back and forth, okay, Terry? 
is missing a slide? Missing three slides. That's the last slide. How about earlier in the sermon? What? Okay, well, okay, there's what should one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There should be seven. One, two, three, four. Okay, so we're missing two. There's seven there? Seven points. Okay, good. We're connected now. Okay, y'all have a paper? Y'all have a pen? No? Okay, we're, we're just going to keep waiting then. But in the meantime, look at these questions or objections, okay? And pick out two, your top two, that are the ones that you would like talked about. Because you guys are going to help me write my sermon next week. Did you know that? And the way you're going to write it is that I'm going to look at what you wrote down on that piece of paper, and the majority wins. Okay, this is a democracy this morning. And I'm going to pick out the two most likely asked and we're going to, I'm going to use that as part of my sermon, not all of it, part of it, because there's another portion of this scripture today that I need to cover. Okay, so you're going to write down two of those seven, or let's say you have your own question. It's not even up there. I really want her to talk about this, okay? Then go ahead and write that down. Now, if you're the only one to put that down, probably not going to happen, but I, if you want me to talk to you privately about it, then put your name on the card. Otherwise, I want these cards to be anonymous. Okay? So, you, so now what you're doing, write two, either a question or objection or whatever, on your paper that you would like me to talk about next week. Or if you have your own, do your own. Do not write more than two. Just two. Madison, you need one too. Madison got missed. I'm not sure. Can you get an index card and a pin to Madison back there? Jim, did you get one? Okay. Terry, did you get one? Okay, good. Thank you. Back there, the our our wonderful tech team, and then over here, a couple of youth, three youth. I see you. No, I don't need one. I'm just going to be the counter. I'm just going to tally. and If there's a tie, then yes, I will vote. <laughs> yeah. Got to give you a little bit more time. So I'll make sure you get it written out. And then um, if you, the ushers, will come up and they'll kind of walk down the aisle and collect them and they'll come to me. Yes. If you would turn in your cards to the two center aisles, like to Nigel and Celeste and Michelle and Juan and Jamie and Alice and David and over here, Goggin and Yvonne and Don. 
don't remember his name. And you could turn in the pins too, that'd be nice. If you take it, it's okay. It's okay. Kiana, you're so cute, honey. Thank you for helping. Make sure you get them for the youth back there. I want to hear what their questions are. All right. All right, so depending on what you guys write down, this will be part of what I share next week. So if you have a friend or a family member that's in town that might be struggling on some of these questions, bring them next week. They might enjoy what we have to say. We'll see. All right. Now, this weekend... There's about between 12 to 20 people who were trained on healing prayer. And they are very excited about what they learn and what they experience. One of the uh, individuals, without saying who the person was, came with uh, back trouble. Back trouble for a very long time. And the pain level, we marked it at 10, and we prayed and went down to 7. We prayed again and went down to three, I think, or ended at two. And he was happy. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Didn't have to have surgery. Okay, so maybe we should pray again for that two to go to zero. Or maybe he's creeped up a little bit. We need to get it back down to two. But whatever the case is, is we are a church to believe in healing. And I feel like this morning, because of what we were being trained in doing to do, and because of his, his anointing for desiring to love us, that he wants to do some physical healing this morning. So if you have physical pain right now, I'd like you to stand, and we're going to pray for God to heal you. Now just wait. I want you to stand if you are experiencing physical pain right now. Not that you have right now. Okay, and you may be some of the people that got the training. Okay, no problem. We don't mind. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and empower his church to heal. The people that are going to pray for you are not healers. They're just vessels of God's love. And God wants to use us for some reason. He likes using us to manifest himself through us. And so we're going to pray healing. So what I want to do first is those who are in the training that are not standing, would you please get up and disperse yourself between these people that are standing? Back there, are you standing? No. So there's nobody standing over there. You're just pretending you're standing. Okay. Yvonne, Kevin, Mercy. I particularly want the team to be activated first by getting them in, in position. Yvonne over here. Mercy over here.
you see Yvonne over there? Yvonne? Thank you, dear. You can go where you like. Someone just went. Thank you, Andrea. Dan, are you going to pray? You're taking care of. Okay. Okay, now, if you were standing and you were the one that wanted healing, I want to make sure you recover. So raise your hand. Does everybody have somebody to pray for them? Good. Okay, now, I want the rest of you that want to participate, even though you didn't go to this session, but you would like to participate, I would like you to go to who you want to pray for. Raise your hand if you're being prayed for, okay? We just want to identify, because some people will sense, oh, I saw your face before I ever came. I, I'm supposed to pray for you, all right? I want to make sure everybody has at least two people. If you have three, that's great. We still have one. We need one more person that's coming. Okay. Helen, are you standing to get prayed for? Or you're praying for him? Awesome. Woman of faith. Okay. Now, this is what's going to happen. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to interview. Okay, what that means. Okay, now the person who's been trained is like, we're going to call them the team player. Okay, the team person. Facilitator, yes. Okay, but the rest of you are still part of this. Okay, so the first thing you can do is interview. That means ask them what hurts. What's going on? Okay, so go ahead. No long history of... 10 years ago, okay? Just. Okay, hopefully you got to share enough, did you? All right, now we're going to do what's called a diagnosis. And what that means is you're figuring out, gosh, what kind of prayer am I going to pray? And one that might help is come Holy Spirit, fill us Holy Spirit, use me Holy Spirit, whatever, but just figure out what you want to pray. And then step three is to pray. Okay, now before you pray, we're going to do something a little bit different. The person who's hurting, associate that pain right now. Find that pain and give it a number 10. It may not be like 10, i got to rush you to the hospital, but just give it, label it a 10. This pain I'm experiencing right now, put a 10 to that pain. Okay, you all did that, the people we're getting prayed for? Okay, because we're going to pray for diminish of pain. So if that pain is a 10, it's a 10, okay? And when we go to check in, we're going to ask how that pain is going, okay? But right now, you all got that as a 10, right? Okay, now go ahead and pray for God to speak directly to that pain. Those who are praying and taught, you know, you do. Go ahead and pray.
those of you that are sitting down, pray. You pray where you're sitting for God's power to come and healing to come. Keep praying, but if anybody, the pain has come from a 10 to a 5 or under, will that team clap? When you get to 5 or under, I want the team to clap. You can keep praying, but just check in and find out how the pain is doing. And when that happens, I just want you to clap and then keep going to pray. Just, okay? Keep praying. Now let's just stop for a second. We're going to do what's called feedback. The Holy Spirit's not, you're not, you keep going, the rest of you. The Holy Spirit's not going to leave. He's here. Feedback means just ask him, how's it going? What are you experiencing? Ask him, what's the pain level from 10? What would you label it now? Okay, now, once you got that, go back into prayer and ask for more.
All right, anybody else five and under? Clap your hands. All right, praise God. The most important gift you're giving to this person, thank you, is love. You are loving them. They're not a project. They're a person that we love. We're giving them God's love. And part of that love is his healing. If you are done praying, you may sit down. We're going to get a little feedback. Okay, worship team, worship team, I'd like you to come up here. That last song, God Reigns, I'd like you to play it. But I want to hear some testimonies so we can sing this song with conviction because God reigns. <laughs> and he's awesome. All right. Anybody here from a 10 that dropped to a 5, raise your hand. Yes. One, two. Three, four, five, awesome. Six, anybody drop from a five to a three or two? One, two, okay, three, four. Let's clap and give God a hand. Okay, anybody here with a zero? The pain is completely gone. Okay, my feedback on that is get more prayer. Prayer sometimes is way more effective than aspirin or ibuprofen or anything else you're on. Okay, we're going to sing this song. And then after that, the service is dismissed. Um, I don't know. I, I really want to make sure that we're on. Okay, just, just make it quick, okay? don't have time. Just felt like we needed to do the physical one today. Oh, you mean like... I just want to say something real quick. My name's David. Yeah. For those of you that might not know Afterwards. me. Any sports fans in the house? How do you act at a sporting event? Okay. The Lord reigns. That's something more to celebrate. After this song, about something emotional or something troubling you, there will be people here that will pray for you afterwards. Don't need to leave without that. Okay, bless you.
sweetness Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice The Lord reigns with the people clap their hands Angels shout for a deep death comes to